Before I hit the play button, let me mention two things that may encourage you. Number one, we have some theological variation in our church over baptism and other doctrines. But please don't interpret variation as hostility. Big difference. I believe that we're in a good place as a church. I think we have a humble and open-minded people ready to love and learn. God is good to us. His Spirit is working in our church. And uh, He is here, God is here, to build our faith and to build our unity. So I think we're in a good spot. Two, please, 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 I beg of you, imagine me down on my knees begging to come to me with your questions. Uh, It is my honor and it is my pleasure and it is my job to help you make sense of scripture and theology. You're not a bother or a waste of my time. Call me, text me, email me, write me, treat me to coffee, whatever you're comfortable with, but ask your questions. Ask your questions. Um, Dialogue, I believe, needs to happen outside of Sunday morning so that we wrestle with these things. So consider you asking me questions a way to love your pastor. Because I get encouraged by that. All right, play button. Here we go. Number six. Number six. Are the children of believers part of the covenant of grace and the visible church? Now, this is the longest point. Uh, It's a big question. Maybe the biggest one. Reformed churches answer yes. And I think it's fair to say the large majority of Baptistic churches answer no. I can only scratch the surface here, but hopefully this encourages you to to study this more. B.B. Warfield uh, was a great Reformed theologian, and he summarized the Reformed argument very simply. He said this, The argument of infant baptism, in a nutshell, is simply this. God established his church in the days of Abraham and put children into it. They must remain there until he puts them out. He has nowhere put them out. They are still then members of his church and as such entitled to its ordinances, end of quote. In other words, little covenant kids are in the covenant and in the visible church, so baptize them as a sign and a seal of their being in. Is it logical to believe that they're in, but deprive them baptism, which signifies and seals that they're in? For over 2,000 years, believers and their children were in the covenant of grace and visible church because God graciously put them in and marked them as in. The question is, has God removed children? I think that's where the burden of proof lies. We need to seriously consider two questions. Number one, where in Scripture does God remove children of believers from His gracious covenant and the visible church? And two, where does God say that covenant children should stop receiving the sign and seal of His covenant? You see, we we would expect Scripture to clarify a seismic change like that. If that seismic change occurred, why didn't anyone ask the apostles at Pentecost, um, 
Are our children out of the covenant now and out of the church, and should we not give them the sign, the new sign and seal? That seismic change would have left the Jewish Christians confused, scratching their heads, and explicit and extensive teaching uh, would have been necessary at that point. That teaching is not found. Instead, Peter confirmed the covenant status of children. I understand the objection. Show me in Scripture where infants, where an infant gets baptized. I get it. I understand that. And I think there's a good answer for that. The more difficult question, though, is where in Scripture does God remove children of believers from the covenant and the visible church? So let's look at some Scriptures. So please turn to these in your own Bible so you can see them. I have them all listed so you can get a jump on me. I got to keep moving. Luke 18, 15 through 17. Jesus was in Judea teaching circumcised covenant Jews. And Luke wrote this. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For... To such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. As a picture of the gospel, Jesus took little children, even infants, into his arms, placed his hands on them, prayed for them, blessed them, and extended grace to them. He considered covenant children part of his covenant people. One great pastor scholar said this, but it is presumption and sacrilege to drive far from the fold of Christ those whom he cherishes in his bosom and to shut the door and exclude as strangers those whom he does not wish to be forbidden to come to him. We must view and treat covenant children as Jesus did? Should we withhold God's means of grace from those whom Jesus extended grace? For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, was Jesus teaching infant baptism? Absolutely not. Of course not. You read that in the text. But he did confirm for us the covenant status of children of believers And from that doctrine of their covenant status, the implications for baptism are huge, huge. Acts 2, 37 through 41. This deserves way more time. I must be brief, though. First, Peter preached to circumcised covenant promise-possessing our children are in Jews. So you have to hear Peter's sermon as those Jews would have heard it. Second, Peter's sermon is filled with Old Covenant references. Third, Peter emphasized baptism because it replaced circumcision as the new sign and seal of the covenant. Peter preached the gospel of the crucified and risen Lord and Messiah, Jesus Christ, and he placed guilt for Christ's crucifixion on his Jewish audience. He told them in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
What a bold word. I mean, he was looking at them essentially saying, you killed God's promised Messiah. It wrecked them. Wrecked them. With genuine sorrow, they asked Peter and the apostles, maybe some of them with tears, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter said, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why baptism? Because baptism replaced the sign and seal of God's gospel promise. It was the new mark. Circumcision ceased. Baptism now signified their forgiveness, their justification, their receiving the promised Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit promised to Abraham, which Galatians 3 explains, and their entrance into the new covenant community of faith. Again, the parallel between circumcision and baptism is striking. Verse 39 is a game changer. Peter continued, for The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, right there is the covenant formula. It's repeated. Believers, their children, and the Gentiles. That was going on for all of history, pretty much. Peter didn't explain that children were removed, nor that they should no longer receive the sign and the seal. That would have been the spot to do it. Instead, Peter used Abrahamic and Old Covenant language to confirm that children were still in, implying they should receive baptism with their parents. The conjunction for, in verse 39, confirms that God's covenant promise is the basis or the ground or the reason for baptism. And the mention of covenant children in the explanation for baptism, is hugely significant. Those converted Jews heard Peter loud and clear. They tracked with his covenantal logic. Covenant. The children are still in. Drop down to verse 42. Notice, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Teaching followed baptism. Sounds like the Great Commission. Were children part of the visible church? Were they disciples learning beneath the teaching of the apostles? All right, 1 Corinthians 7, 14. It says this, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, I ask the question, how are children made holy by one believing parent? That's a big question. They're not made holy in the sense that they're saved by their parents' faith. That's heresy. The Bible doesn't teach that. Made holy means children of at least one believing parent are set apart. They're consecrated. They're distinguished. They're given special status. We could say covenant status. They have a place in the visible church. Think of the blessings a covenant child gains the moment even one of their parents believes and joins God's visible church. 
They're not saved by it, but they're set apart and they're profoundly blessed by it. The Reformation Study Bible notes, because children of at least one believing parent are set apart, it is right to apply to these children the visible sign and seal of their separation from the world and incorporation into the covenant community, end of quote. And that conclusion is biblical. Calvin agreed. He wrote this. The passage then is a remarkable one and drawn from the depths of theology, for it teaches that the children of the pious are set apart from others by a sort of exclusive privilege so as to be reckoned holy in the church. End of quote. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, and Colossians 3, verse 20. Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians to the visible churches in those cities. In both letters, Paul directly addressed the children in those local churches. Listen to what he said. To the Ephesian covenant children, he wrote, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He instructed them as disciples as if they were in the Lord. He told the Colossian covenant children, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Now, Paul was obviously referring to kids still at home under the spiritual authority and spiritual nurture of their Christian parents. Kids considered as part of those local churches. They were disciples learning to follow Jesus. One note put it like this, children in the church have responsibility to live as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Zacharias Ursinus wrote, if they are disciples of Christ and included in the church, which we may fully establish by the covenant itself and many other passages of scripture, they are fit subjects for baptism. Matthew 28 shows that disciples are to be baptized. Covenant children are disciples of Jesus who should be baptized. Doesn't mean they're saved, but they do have covenant status and are being taught the law and gospel at home and at church. Sadly, when you think about it, that's not what happens with the children of unbelieving parents. They don't get any of those blessings. Can't little children learn to obey their parents and please the Lord? Isn't that what Paul is saying? Paul viewed and treated covenant children as disciples in the visible church, the local visible church. Now, you may not agree with with, uh, covenant infant baptism, but would you agree that little children of believers are members of the visible church and entitled to certain blessings among the church. Would you agree with that? Here's another angle. We can't explore this much, but folks, for me, this is very compelling. Of the few New Testament baptisms mentioned, there aren't a lot of baptisms. They're there, but not a ton. Uh, Of those, four are household baptisms, where entire households were baptized. Lydia, the Philippian jailer, Crispus, and Stephanus. Oikos is the Greek word for household, or you could even say family. It appears 
1,778 times in the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament written before the time of Christ. So they had access to it when Jesus was, was uh, walking the earth. Oikos is used in Genesis 17, where Abraham circumcised every male in his household. For 2,000 years, household absolutely included infants and children, and those infants received the sign and seal of God's covenant, 2,000 years strong. Does oikos then guarantee there were infants in the household baptisms? Not necessarily. Although household baptisms were likely common, considering the forementioned. So it's very probable, that's the language that I would use, very probable that at least some household baptisms included the baptism of infants. That's not a far stretch at all. It's, it's impossible to prove that, ba- that infants were not baptized in those covenant baptisms. Now, considering the prominent covenant theme in Scripture... Considering the meaning of oikos in redemptive history, I think the bigger challenge is proving there weren't infants included in those household baptisms. I think it's quite fair, and folks, please read me. I want to be fair to the baptistic view. I want to be very fair to that. I'm not trying to throw punches necessarily, okay? I think it's quite fair to say that baptistic churches view and treat at least in some significant ways, their children as unbelieving outsiders of the covenant of grace in the visible church. And Ligon Duncan agrees, who knows a whole, he grew up Baptist and he knows a whole lot of Baptists, and I'm using Baptist then in the larger term of everyone who uh, rejects covenant infant baptism. He said this, Ligon Duncan, Baptists believe that the church The New Testament church is made up of believers only and not believers and their children. So it's not just an issue of sacraments, it's an issue of ecclesiology. It's not just an issue of what you think about the subject of baptism, it's an issue of what you think the membership of the church is. The deeper debate is really over the issue of who constitutes the church, end of quote. Saints, if the new covenant is a better covenant, does it make sense that the little children of believers were removed from the covenant and visible church? How would that be better? The life, death, and resurrection of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit did not banish children from the covenant and the covenant community of faith. It blessed them more. Praise God for His grace for children. Number seven. Infant baptism was the universal practice of the Christian church until the 1500s and continues to be the majority practice today. Now, this argument is not from Scripture. So this is weakened, okay? It's not a biblical argument, but it's compelling, Try to follow me here. The Apostle John discipled Polycarp, who arguably, the case can be made, implicitly referred to infant baptism. 
Polycarp then discipled Irenaeus, who implicitly mentioned infant baptism. Irenaeus discipled Hippolytus, who explicitly mentioned infant baptism in 215 A.D. A little later, Origen mentioned infant baptism as the universal practice of the Christian church. Origen said this, quote, The church received from the apostles the tradition of giving baptism even to infants, end of quote. Origen wrote that around 150 years after the death of the apostle John. Not a long time. So understand my logic here. If baptism was not passed down by the apostles, is it reasonable to think that infant baptism became not just a little practice over here, but the universal practice in the Christian church so close to the time of the apostles? Augustine lived in 354 to 430 AD. He wrote that infant baptism was the universal practice of the visible church and, quote, handed down by apostolic authority, end of quote. Saints, as far as we can go back, as far as we can go back, infant baptism was universally practiced in the Christian church, the visible church, until a minority group rejected it At the Reformation in the 1500s, why was covenant baptism questioned only 500 years ago? The Anabaptists began opposing it, and their views were troubling in other areas, not the least of which was their desire to largely dismiss the Old Testament and build the church upon New Testament principles only. That's significant, folks. The Anabaptist view of the Old Testament was, at that time, unorthodox, stepping out of bounds, and absolutely influenced their departure from covenant infant baptism. That's historic. Saints, why is the Baptistic position still the minority report today among those who consider themselves Christians? In the world today, over 80% of those who identify themselves as Christians practice infant baptism. Now, for different reasons, okay? For different reasons. But infant baptism continues to be, this is important, the majority report. The majority report. I think we might be able to use the word overwhelming majority report. Beloved saints, dear saints, The 2,000-year-old majority report on Christian baptism could be wrong. It could be wrong. But considering the trajectory of redemptive history and the continuity of the Old and New Covenants, it's highly unlikely. Beloved, dear ones, those whom I love, if you aren't there yet with covenant infant baptism, still loved, but if you're not there yet, it would profit you to study the majority report on baptism very closely until you are absolutely convinced that the Christian church for most of history has been entirely wrong. That would serve you well. Know the covenant view in and out. Know it well. Know the arguments. Know the biblical case for it. Know it so well that you don't find yourself superficially rejecting it and pushing it away, pushing away that which so beautifully and compellingly pictures the gospel. 
Don't be flippant about it. Understand the issues involved. Number eight, do Reformed churches baptize adults who profess faith? And what about unbelieving older children? And this is commonly misunderstood, so I hope that this helps some of you. Reformed churches love to baptize adults when they profess faith in the perfect life, crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension, and lordship of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Reformed and Baptistic churches agree 100% that adults who profess faith in Christ should be baptized and brought into the visible church. No argument. Maybe on the meaning of baptism and why we're doing it, but no argument over those professing baptisms. But consider this. Please listen closely. I think this is helpful. All professing believers' baptisms in Scripture were first-generation baptisms. Nowhere in Scripture do we see a covenant child not baptized as an infant, growing up in the church, and baptized upon profession of faith. Now, that's the practice that Baptistic churches are defending, and you don't see that in Scripture anywhere. So the point of disagreement is not the baptism of adults who profess Christ, That's a non-issue. We can stop talking about it because we believe the same. The issue is what to do with children of believers. One reform writer made this point. There is no example of anyone born to Christian parents being baptized in the New Testament at any age. And no precept addresses their specific situation. The time and circumstances that are appropriate for baptizing such children must be inferred from general biblical teaching concerning baptism. Do you understand? Everybody is making inferences, and they're looking at Scripture and other doctrines and making inferences on baptism. And covenant theology should inform your inference because of the strength of it found in Scripture. Now, it is often commonly accepted that the practice of Baptistic churches has direct and clear biblical warrant and that Reformed people are trying really hard to prove something not found explicitly in Scripture. Well, this Reformed writer added this, let us once and for all disabuse ourselves of the notion that what goes on in Baptistic churches has direct biblical warrant. It is only inferred from Scripture, as is our practice, end of quote. Everyone is inferring when it comes to baptism. So then, which inference honors God's sovereign plan, God's sovereign covenants, and God's sovereign grace most beautifully, most effectively? Which one pictures the gospel more? This brings us to some common objections and questions. Now, more can be said on all of these, but here's the first one. And this isn't all the common objections and questions. There is an explicit command in the Bible to baptize professing believers, but no explicit command to baptize infants of professing believers. That's true. That's true. But again, Reformed theology agrees with baptizing adults upon profession of faith. That's not the issue. And that's all that we see in Scripture. My last point addressed this objection. So understand the difference. The difference lies in how we view and treat children of professing believers. That's the issue. We prefer to dedicate our children. Okay, well, 
Scripture explicitly commands baptism, but there is no command or example of baby dedication in Scripture. Now, 1 Samuel 1 with Hannah and Samuel and Luke 2 with Jesus are often used to make the case for baby dedication, but a simple reading of those texts, very simple reading of the text, proves they were unique circumstances and not done on all covenant infants. In the case of Jesus, only firstborn Jewish males were called holy to the Lord. So in one stretch of a sense, maybe it would make sense to just take the firstborn males and dedicate them in some ceremony, but even that's a stretch. That's not what we see in baby dedication today. Now let me ask this question, and I hope it's fair. Might baby dedication exist because covenant thinking is instinctive to Christians. Uh, And I say this in love and respect, dear brothers and sisters, dear saints of God, I find it ironic that many argue against covenant infant baptism on the basis it's not in Scripture, but then replace it with a ritual that's not found in Scripture. I just find that ironic. And I think that's because, if I'm being fair, it's because of our gospel instincts. It's our, it's, our in, it's our very instinct knowing the gospel to say our covenant children have a special status and we must display that status in some way. There are good scholars on both sides. Boy, is that ever true. Some of my heroes are on both sides of this one. But we must keep in mind that we will be held accountable by God for what we believe and do. We must also keep in mind, just think logically here, folks, one of the views is wrong. One of the views is wrong. They they cannot both be right. That's impossible logically, okay? One of the camps is wrong. If God wants you to baptize your infant and you don't, God does not want to hear you justify your well-intentioned disobedience with, well, John Piper says that it was okay, And on the other side, if God does not want you to baptize your infant, and you do, God does not want to hear you justify your well-intentioned disobedience with, while John Calvin said it was okay. Beloved, as soon as I say this, if some of you are like me, really sensitive, you get stuck in the middle and you're like, well, which way do I go then? I feel like if I go this way and then... And if I go this way, and I'm just, forget the Bible. I'm an atheist because of baptism. Okay, so I know that I'm, obviously, that's way over the top. but, uh, But my point is this, don't feel um, guilty or anxious about getting baptism absolutely right, because when you, when you get in there, yes, we must study, yes, we must pray, yes, we must keep discerning and discussing, uh, but it can take your focus away from the beautiful gospel displayed in the sacrament. So you better desire to get it right. Just don't feel guilty and anxious. Just study, l- listen, learn, discern, and with love for God and with love for others in your heart, do what you believe honors God. Saints, I don't need to worry that my view is wrong. 
And that because, you know, what if I'm wrong, then I'm condemned before God. I've been practicing this stuff for so long and I got it wrong. God, what are you going to do with me? It's not my view of baptism which justifies me. It is Christ alone that justifies me. I am united to him. And so he is protecting me. When I get things wrong, and I know some of my theology is wrong, I just don't know where it's wrong because I'm trying to figure it all out, but if I knew it was wrong, I'd change it. I just don't know where it's wrong until God opens these things to my eyes. And so do what you believe is most compelling. But I must say this, I do find covenant theology most compelling. It just makes total sense to me, and it helps me unify the whole thing of Scripture. I read it differently because of covenant theology. And and I think covenant theology honors Christ the most. I think it displays the sovereign grace of God the most. And, And I must say, I do find it at least somewhat comforting to know that the Christian church has practiced infant baptism as far as we can go back. That's not the, the conclusive argument, but it does give me some comfort that I'm not pressing outside of the realms of what history has, has taught us. It is wrong to give the sign of faith to babies who cannot believe. And you know, that, that argument is very persuasive for a lot of Christians, but look at it like this. If that's a valid point, why did God command Abraham and his descendants to do that exact thing? Circumcision was no less than the sign of faith. And God commanded infants to receive that sign of faith. So R.C. Sproul rightly argued, quote, the crucial point is that in the Old Testament, God ordered that a sign of faith be given before faith was present. Since that was clearly the case, it is erroneous to argue in principle that it is wrong to administer a sign of faith before faith is present. End of quote. So if I can just tell those of you who who aren't on the infant baptism page to bring that up and to say, well, he didn't command that you have some work to do with circumcision, which is exactly what you're arguing against. And so, and Paul makes that connection with justification by faith and the sign of circumcision. So you got to answer Paul there, I guess. I think R.C. Sproul is right. And something else to consider Even Baptistic churches, which which have a serious high view of Scripture and wanting not to baptize unregenerate, unborn-again people, they want to guard against that, they need to admit that they do baptize some unrepentant, unredeemed sinners. They don't have it perfect because only God has the infallible knowledge of whether that faith is authentic. So we've got Reformed and baptized churches doing the same thing. We're baptizing people that are unsaved. Doesn't the Great Commission of Matthew 28 clearly disprove covenant infant baptism? Some say make disciples means they believe and then are baptized. To which I would respond, one, faith is not explicitly mentioned in the Great Commission. And covenant children are disciples. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven belongs to infants. Ursinus said, quote, but infants are disciples because they are born in the church and are taught after their manner, end of quote. Remember that even Judas, whom Jesus chose, was a disciple. Was he not blessed by his covenant status? And he wasn't redeemed. 
But he was blessed. Think of all the times he was around Jesus hearing gospel truth and he hated it and spurned it. And there are covenant children who grow up their entire life immersed in the gospel and reject it to prove themselves covenant breakers under the curse of the covenant. That should, that should just rattle us to be so gospel-centered as parents to give our children Christ, law, and gospel at home because they're going to get it at this church. Why was circumcision only administered to little boys and baptism administered to little boys and girls? Well, my answer is simple because that's how God did it. Uh, it, this question has little to do with infant baptism because we could ask the question, why didn't God choose another sign and seal of the covenant in the Old Testament so women could receive it? Well, because he didn't, because he chose to do it the way that he did it. And, and at least there's a connection between circumcision and his promised seed. See the connection with that? The new covenant is a better covenant, as Hebrew tells us, and so both males and females receive the sign, and isn't that wonderful? They do. What about the baptism of John and Jesus? John's baptism, this, this, if you can just hear this echo in your, it was not Christian Trinitarian baptism. You've got to put it in another, it, it has no bearing on this discussion whatsoever. It was a baptism of repentance. It was not Christian baptism. John prepared the way for Jesus the Messiah in the book of Acts. Those baptized with John's baptism needed to receive Christian baptism after they had been baptized with John. Also, proselyte baptisms were being practiced for hundreds of years in the Mediterranean world before Jesus showed up. Jesus received baptism from John as an anointing to his high priestly role, his, his priesthood. Jesus doesn't need forgiveness. I hope you agree with that. It's not doing the same thing. But at least we could say, I think it's fair, that he was identifying with us in our need. Not his need, identifying with us in our need. Infant baptism gives people a false sense of assurance. Only if they grossly misunderstand the meaning of baptism. Baptism does not save, nor does it mean the baptized person is saved. They must have true and saving faith to be saved. Covenant kids, and I'll just speak for my covenant kids, are being told that they will receive the blessings of the covenant only if they trust in Christ. If they don't trust in Christ, if they don't walk by the Spirit, if they don't fulfill their covenant obligations, they will suffer the eternal curses of the covenant. False assurance is held by people who grossly misunderstand the word and the sacraments. This is why proper preaching and teaching must be here for our covenant kids. Is an infant baptism a Roman Catholic invention? The, please hear me carefully on this. The reform view of baptism is different from the Roman Catholic view, Lutheran view, Anglican view, Moravian view, Eastern Orthodox view, and other views on infant baptism. Now have fun with that. Our justification is different. Roman Catholicism teaches that in the act of baptism, infants are justified and saved. That baptism itself cleanses the baby from all sin and incorporates them into Christ. In other words, in Roman Catholicism, baptism is necessary for salvation and baptism actually regenerates infants, and that's heresy. 
That's heresy. That's anti-gospel. That's as anti-gospel as you can get. That's offensive to Christians. Justification is by faith alone, and baptism in the Reformed view is the sign and seal or pledge of the covenant of grace, and it's the distinguishing mark of entrance into the visible church, into the visible church, not the invisible church. It does not mean that they are saved. Okay? I'll go with infant baptism as long as those children can be rebaptized when they profess faith. And folks, this is, this is tricky as a pastor because uh, I want to be sensitive here. I know that several of you were baptized as infants and then you were baptized again upon profession of faith. So what am I going to do now? So, very gently, I don't know your reasons. I don't, unless you've talked to me about them. So I I don't know what was behind it for you. But for some people that are rebaptized, it's because they don't understand baptism. Or sentimentality. Or peer pressure. Or sacramentalism. Or coercion. Or a desire for some spiritual high. Or to commemorate some big life change that happened. But the Bible says that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Rebaptism isn't found in Scripture. For some, rebaptism actually becomes compulsive. They're baptized maybe three, four, five, six times maybe. And it may be for them a form of works righteousness. If I do it again, my heart will be comforted and, and I'll know that I'm really saved this time. Just one more time. Oh, but then last time I wasn't saved, so I need to have it again to show it can actually become compulsive. Not saying that was you, just saying that's some. But I think the primary problem with rebaptism for people who have been baptized as infants, not in some weird cuckoo cult, all right, as infants in the church, is that their rebaptism symbolizes their rejection of covenant infant baptism, which I don't think honors Scripture, nor does it please God, who delights in covenant infant baptism, delights in the gospel being shown in what we do up here with little babies who receive it and they have no idea what's going on. And that's sovereign grace which breaks into the sinner's heart and opens them up to the gospel. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Last thought. This is tough. This is really tough. I My answer's probably pathetic here. I don't know, but anyway, we'll give it a whirl. What if an adult professes faith and their teenage child is an atheist? Do you baptize the teenager? Or what if a teenager who has been baptized as an infant rebels and lives as a covenant breaker? Now, this is very, very sensitive. I haven't taught much on formal church discipline, so you might be like, what is that? Uh, A lot more needs to be said here, so I want to be careful, yet I don't want to dodge the question. Let me be clear. No, an atheist teenager of a believer should not be baptized as part of a covenant baptism for at least two reasons. Number one, nowhere does Scripture advocate baptizing known unbelievers. And two, the moment the atheist teenager would be baptized into the visible church, they would need to immediately receive formal church discipline and be removed from the visible church because of their willful and persistent unbelief. That would make no sense. 
that would be cruel to that teenager. The same is true of baptized covenant teenagers who fail to walk by faith. They must be lovingly shepherded. There must be a lot of back and forth with the elders and the parents and the teenager. But if they persist in their unbelief, they will be formally cut off from God's people. And the Lord's Supper, as God commands in Scripture, which is a loving thing to do with that rebellious teenager, because God commands formal discipline for the benefit and purity of His church, and He sometimes uses church discipline to save people from hell. It is such a good thing, church discipline. You need it or a church can't be healthy. And that's what we do. We just lovingly, please believe in Christ. You don't want us to cut you off, but we will because God commands it. Being baptized is not a free pass. It's not somehow an entitlement to you to live however you want to and to justify your sin and salvation. Covenant baptism comes with big responsibilities and big blessings. Huge blessing. One last thing. Is it right and good to teach our covenant children the Lord's Prayer. Think about that. I think those little covenant hearts should pray with all of their heart, Our Father. Our Father. Isn't it good when covenant children pray with us in the church? Our Father. They pray that because they are a vital part of the covenant community of faith. And that little covenant child, all of them is in, are entitled to the Father's promises as they grow in faith or until they prove themselves to be covenant breakers. Circumcision and baptism are essentially the same thing, folks. They both point directly to Christ who suffered and died and was cut off from God in order to rescue God's chosen people from the penalty of their law-breaking. Covenant infant baptism is beautiful, beautiful. It's a huge blessing to the church and to those little babies because it illustrates the love, compassion, mercy, faithfulness, and sovereign grace of our God and Father who, hear me now, keeps all of His covenant promises. Let's pray. Father, You are so tender because we are Your children and we are stubborn it, it's not just baptism. We, we do our own thing. God, we know your law. We look at it. We have copies of it, likely multiple places of our house. And we go against it, knowing exactly what you have commanded. In those moments before the TV screen, computer screen, the moments in that argument with our wife, the moments that we're parenting, the moments that we're grandparenting, the moment that guy cut us off at the intersection, the moment someone stole something from us. God, we know what we should do, and what do we do? We break your law again and again. And yet, because of our covenant status, because of our union with Christ by faith, you are pleased to call us your sons and daughters, that when we say something stupid, you still love us because your son died for us. God, this, is, this, this baptism issue 
we, we need some help. We need you and your spirit to work to unify us around this. And God, even if we're not unified, if, if, if everybody here just continues, you know, whatever, I don't know, we go in different directions on various things, would you give us love at least by the spirit? And then may your, may your Holy Spirit guide us to rightly interpret the scripture. That's what we're trying to do. Reformed and Baptistic churches hold the scripture in such high regard that we're trying to study it rightly and figure it out. God, we need your spirit on this. When we hear both sides, it's almost as if, man, there's some good arguments on both sides. It it can be confusing. So God, would you be merciful to your children and help us to believe the truth? Help us to make sense of this? God, where we err and step out of bounds, pull us back by your gentleness and help us, God, to live without the oppression of getting it right. Of course getting it right is important. We can't say, well, there's disagreement so it doesn't matter. Oh no, it matters huge. But help us not to walk around burdened by this, but simply to look through the sacrament to the glories of Christ. I pray that we treasure him. And I pray that you help us to work out these differences. We've been struggling as a church the, since the very beginning. Your disciples were a mess. They argued and bickered and were prideful and said dumb things. So we can identify with that, and yet we know that you walk with us by your Spirit and you love us, and you keep loving us, and you keep giving us grace, and you keep bringing unity, and one day we will be perfectly unified and we'll get it all right because we will see in the glorious face of Jesus perfection of doctrine and of everything else. God, thank you for Jesus, and I pray that we see him. In Jesus' name, amen.